0: to us the story of the very first ordination of the first preacher of the gospel. That's what this story is about. See, there is the ordination. Go, right? That's the ordination. Go, go, and call your husband to come here. There is the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is introducing someone to Christ, telling someone that God loves them so much. There it is. So, think about this. The first evangelist, ordained by Christ himself, was a woman. And not just any woman, but a woman who we Christians would say was living in sin at the time she was ordained. And if that little synopsis of this story doesn't get you excited for where we're going to be this summer, then I can't hope. Some of you remember we studied this story about four years ago. Some of you weren't with us four years ago, and it's great to have you with us now. And I thought it would be the perfect story to explore as we start in our new home here at Greenville People's Church with the people of this community. And I'm praying that the new things we discover in it, because we will discover new things, that's the beauty of reading scripture is that every time you go into it, you have an opportunity to learn something new that you've never seen before. So I'm praying that those new things that we learn, looking at it again, as well as being reminded of the things we learned a number of years ago, will inspire and encourage us further on in this journey of ours that we call faith. So what I want to do this morning is I actually want to start with a little History 101, where I think it's very important that we have a background on the Samaritan-Jewish relationship if we are going to understand some of the more wonderful and deeper truths of this story. It's not enough to say, it's not enough to say, well, the Samaritans were a mixed race and the Jews did not like them. That is a black and white view of the problem that doesn't really tell the whole story and only serves to further racism and prejudice. Whenever we want to put our lens on history in a little box or a black and white view, it's not going to work. History, both ancient and current, developing in front of us is always much greater than our little pink boxes that Pete Seaton used to call So, let's get into the history so maybe we can start to really understand how complex this is. So, Solomon died, and after Solomon died, the empire that his father David built was split into two. Okay, so that's what happened after Solomon died. The northern kingdom here on the the screen, the green, represented by the green, those were the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh and others. That was the, the northern kingdom of the Hebrew people. They considered Samaria their capital while the southern kingdom of Judah considered Jerusalem their capital, that's represented by the pink. But this split itself after Solomon died was not black and white, and it was not easy, and it was not caused by new animosities. You have to go way back to Genesis to read how much the sons of Jacob didn't get along. Remember those 12 brothers that sold one of their own, Joseph, into slavery? Yes, these are now the twelve. They started the twelve tribes. So by the time of this split at the end of the Solomon Empire, these animosities ran deep, and they were very, very ancient. So then, a couple hundred years later, after Solomon died and the empire split, about 700 years before Christ, Israel, the northern, the northern kingdom, was taken captive by Assyria, and that's represented by, see those red lines, so the king of Assyria comes in to the northern kingdom, takes it captive, and historians state that some 27,000 or so Israelites were taken into exile, that's what those, those red lines represent. Interestingly enough, in another 100 years or so, the southern empire would collapse to the Babylonians and they would be taken, but that's a different history and a different story. Right now, just focus on this fact that what happened was Israel was under Hosea at the time, and Hosea had this brilliant idea that he would stop paying taxes to Assyria. And the king was like, really? Well, then you're done. So he <laughs> went in and he got rid of, he got rid of the northern kingdom. Then what he did was he repopulated Samaria. So now he repopulated the green area with people from his other properties, his other territories. He brought in Babylonians, Kuthites, people from Hamath, as well as the Abhites and the Sepharvites, and, and make sure you're writing all this down because the spelling is included on the test. it will count. But anyway, so think about this. Here we have two kingdoms, the green one is now decimated, their people have been mostly exiled, and then all these new people come in. This is what ultimately leads the southern kingdom of Judah, okay, the Jewish people, the true Jewish people they call themselves, because that's where their claim came from, because they believe the Samaritans are no longer pure descendants of the original 12 tribes. They assume that there has been intermarriage going on between all of these other people groups that have come into Samaria, which is expressly forbidden by the law of Moses. And remember something else, there were also ancient animosities at play. So this was a convenient way to establish superiority and push agendas, right? And some people even went as far as to say all the Israelites had been taken captive and all the Israelites were exiled. So the Samaritans were not even half Hebrew, which is what some lied. But here's the interesting thing. The Samaritans insisted, and still do, there is a small remnant of Samaritans left in the world, which is fascinating, <coughs> that they were not foreigners, they insisted they were not intermarried, and that they were, in fact, direct and pure descendants of Joseph. And further, they believed their understanding of the Mosaic Law and Moses' instructions to the Hebrew people was the correct one. And here's what's even more fascinating. They have scriptural support for that belief. For example... They always stated, and we're going to see this in the story, in fact, that Mount Gerizim and not Jerusalem is the holy place chosen by God. Well, I think they're on to something. Because if you go back to Deuteronomy, this is God telling Moses what to tell Joshua when you go into the promised land. When you cross the Jordan, have these tribes stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. And then they had other tribes stand on not able to pronounce curses, but Mount Gerizim (laughs) to bless the people. This is key. Mount Gerizim to bless the people. And when they went in, what did Joshua do? Exactly what he was commanded. Half the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half the other, and they did their thing. Fascinating. Isn't it? Sure seems a valid argument that God wanted Mount Gerizim to be the holy place. And then what happens is this. As time went on, the relationship between the two people groups just continued to deteriorate into a gray mess of occupying forces, theological differences, violent clashes. The Jews destroyed the temple in Samaria in 162 BC, 128 BC, Excuse me. and in response, the Samaritans went and desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. So by the time of Christ, where we're at in our story, there was no relationship between the two groups. They hated each other, and as St. John reminded us, had no dealings with each other, for Jews do not associate with Samaritan. It's a complicated, it's intriguing, it's challenging, it's disturbing, it's exciting, it's fantastical, it's an epic struggle between two people groups, and you can read all about it in this wonderful book we have all got. This is what I'm always telling us, we should read the Bible. It. It's a great book to read take it out of the context of whatever you were taught the Bible was, and just read it, and just approach it. This beautiful story of God and us with these fascinating, fascinating histories and yeah, It's the best book out there, and you can read all of it. Now, I went into this background, however, not just to encourage us to read the Bible, but that's a nice byproduct. But mostly, I went into this background to set the stage... For what we're going to see in this story. Also, if and you know I don't do this here at a lot, I let you draw lines yourself from the teaching from Scripture into your own lives. But I think looking at how incredible that struggle is and was in ancient between the Samaritans and Jews sort of speaks to the history of the world everywhere, doesn't? It? Including our own history. Which is often replaying itself out right in our own country. And I think we can learn a lot from understanding things that are black and white. There's ancient histories at play. And we need to, I think Meg taught in Mother's Day, God's look at people without our own prejudices and open up. So I wanted to set the stage for this story. Because, here we go. When it says here, now he had to go through Samaria. This is not a navigationally true statement at all. In fact, if they had a navigation app back then, it would have been screaming, go back, (laughs) wrong way, go to the road to the right, the far, far right. Any Jew who was serious about his or her faith never would have went through Samaria. A, they hated the Samaritans, we just explored that. B, they would not risk the fire. They would have taken the long way. They would have not gone through Samaria. But it says here, he had to go through Samaria. Why? Because true love does not acquiesce to hate, and truly loving others prevents defilement. True love does not acquiesce to hate, and true love does not worry about defilement. Hate has no power over love. And when we truly love others, that prevents defilement. See, this is, Jesus going into Samaria is that mad hatter that crazy kind of love we often talk about. This is that crazy kind of love that ultimately got Jesus killed. You have to read the story closely. In fact, the very first time Jesus opened his mouth in public and he read from the book of Isaiah and they wanted to throw him off a cliff, it's not because he stood up and said, well, this has been... Taken care of in your presence, I am he. It's because what he chose to read from Isaiah was about when a lot of Jewish people were suffering and starving of drought and God sent prophets to save Gentiles. Love is crazy because it loves even our enemies. Jesus had to go through Samaria because love demanded it. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Jesus didn't just say it, he lived it. It's how he lived his life. But now the story gets really mind-blowing in light of the Jewish-Samaritan question when we get to verse 7. Jesus asked this Samaritan woman for a trip. Now, just a quick background. It's necessary to understand this. These wells didn't have buckets attached to them. You had to bring your own bucket. So obviously the disciples must have forgot to leave Jesus' bucket when they went into town they took it with them. So here he is, he's thirsty, he's in need of a drink, but he has no way to get one. He needs this Samaritan woman. Bailey comments on this scene brilliantly. Contained in this dramatic action is a profound theology of mission. Jesus so totally humbles himself that he needs her service. Jesus does not establish his initial relationship with her by explaining how she needs him and his message. That will come later. Rather, his opening line means, I am weak and need help. Can you help me? How does this example of Christ match up with our current understanding of evangelism and mission? How would it match up with our joining in? here with the folks from Green People's Church. Dave's just coming in to visit us. How are you, Dave? Good morning. Good morning. Bailey goes on to cite the Sri Lankan theologian, David Niles. Daniel Niles, sorry. Jesus was a true servant because he was at the mercy of those whom he came to serve. This weakness of Jesus, we his disciples must share to serve from a position of power is not true service. The Christian community must serve, but it must also be in a position where it needs to be served. You know, I sometimes wonder if this is not a lesson we missed from failed to grasp in the record of the first mission trip in Mark 6. Remember when Jesus sent out the disciples, take nothing with you, go, and you will be in need of the people you are going to. Powerful. Here, Jesus is gone in need of this Samaritan woman. In need of her. St. Paul understood this theology. I'm not making this up. Kenneth Bailey's not making this up. St. Paul is the one who taught us that this is what theology around mission should look like in Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus and then that Him to humility. Jesus gave up everything to come to us, to serve us. And honestly, is there anything that would be a better example than a babe wrapped in swaddling death? What is more in need than a baby? God came to us and told the need of us as a baby. So, in light of Christ's example here at Jacob's well, let's examine our own lives for a moment. If we call ourselves followers of Christ, do we follow this example? And this goes for all of us who call ourselves Christians. We don't have to be missionaries or evangelists to use this story to put a mirror into our own lives. You see, as His disciples, we all have one job to do. One job. And that's to tell others that God loves them. St. Francis, he's on this window if you can see it. St. Francis said, preach the gospel always, but use words only when absolutely necessary. Our lives our, our witness. So, do they look like this? Do we approach others with true humility, in genuine concern for their well-being, in a consciousness of our need of them, or do we take on an air of superiority, a know-it-all correctly, and here to bless you mentality? And while we're at examining our own lives and asking ourselves this question, what our lives look like, don't just be thinking about your in-person interactions with people. Maybe think about your social media interactions with people. Don't forget the history we went through about this woman and this man. He is in need of someone that his entire people said was wrong. Sinners. Horrible. Them. Whatever you want to call it. And here he is sitting in need of him. Do we seek to understand others' lives? Positions. Ideas engage them in authentic friendship, and love them where they are at? Or do we go to others thinking they need everything from us, and we need nothing? Imagine if we all took the time to just sit and listen to other stories. I mean, that it takes a lot of time. Because when you first sit with enemies, you don't get their story. Get their defense mechanism, just like we do people our defense mechanism when we sit in But imagine really listening to their stories and finding out why they think the way they do and act the way they do. Imagine. Imagine. Michael Craven recently wrote these thoughts on following Christ more authentically. It's a long quote, but I want to share it. He starts off. Too often, our attitude toward the surrounding culture and those who make it up is judgmental and condemning. We thoughtlessly criticize anything that isn't distinctly Christian. Now, I want to pause here a moment and I want to open up this quote. I want to make it more generous for us. okay? Because otherwise we can fall right into the thing I'm trying to get us not to fall into. Maybe you're not the kind of Christian that does actually criticize the, 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 the world. So let's read this more generously. Let's read it as, too often our attitude toward the surrounding culture meaning whoever's different than us. And that happens a lot right in churches, doesn't it? Church to church. So just let's read it as broad as we can and ask ourselves, are we doing it? When met with opposing ideas, we draw a cultural battle line and those on the other side are considered the enemy. We vilify and ridicule the representatives of godless culture. Again, let's read it broadly of anyone who thinks different than them. And rather than engage with and love them, we take offense and withdraw into our Christian, our, our particular enclave. Practically speaking, many Christians live as if they really don't like the world or anyone else. Read through social media. Read through your own comments. We're often doing precisely the opposite of what Jesus did. He did not come to condemn the world. He came to save it. And in one of his first big actions, he sat at a well at noonday This is the Bible we read and the God we follow. We can't, we can't rewrite his story. We have to take his story as it is. Michael Craven goes on, these were the very people to whom he was drawn and engaged with, the dirty, the broken, the vulgar, the immoral, and the enemy. Those are some of the words we often use to describe others that we disagree. That's going to a lot right now. Jesus didn't condemn these, he engaged them, ate and drank with them, defended them against their accusers. He loved them because the first, and because he first loved them, they in turn followed. Do we follow this Christ? Or do we follow what Christ made in our own? I'm guilty. i like to follow a price-made mind. I don't have to love my enemies that well. And I can disparage them. And I can beat down their arguments and their theologies and their positions and feel good about myself. As I study this story, I know I need to start following the price of the Bible, not the one I made up in my head. Daniel Niles wrote, The glory of the lion is the glory of the lion. The only way to build love between two people or two groups of people is to be so related to each other as to stand in need. So, and this is what I love about St. John. St. John tells us that when Jesus came, term it was about noon in the heat of the midday sun to this hill outside of Sifar he said to this woman I need a drink his humble need led to her salvation and the salvation of men later Saint John will tell us Jesus came in the heat of another midday to a hill outside of Jerusalem and he said from that humble knee, the whole world is saved. Thanks be to God.